Good evening. Thank you all for joining us. My name is Emily Duffy. On behalf of the Catholic Information Center, it's my pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. I'm delighted to introduce our speaker, George Weigel, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Mr. Weigel is a Catholic theologian and one of America's foremost commentators on issues of religion and public life. He is the author of 21 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Witness to Hope, the biography of John Paul II. Tonight, he will be discussing his newly released book, City of Saints, a pilgrimage to John Paul II's Krakow. Please help me to welcome George Weigel. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank Father Arne uh, for the invitation, Emily uh, for lining things up, Mitch, uh, all the other good people who work here. I was just saying to Father Arne outside what, a, what an enormous blessing uh, the Catholic Information Center is for the church in downtown Washington. I don't really know anything like this in any other major American city. And um, it's a great uh, accomplishment that's the result of the work of a lot of people. So thanks to all of you who helped make this possible. Uh, I'm much more interested in having a conversation with you about this uh, book than uh, talking to you about it. So my, my remarks are going to be very brief. Um, this is a labor of love about a city I love and have probably spent in the aggregate close to three years in now over the past uh, uh, 25 years and obviously about a man uh, whom I came to love and esteem over 15 years of, of conversation. The book is uh, frankly uh, inspired by the fact that World Youth Day is going to be in Krakow uh, next uh, summer. And I'm sure some of you will uh, be there. And it seemed to me that a special kind of introduction to the city uh, would be useful uh, on that occasion. Uh, but let me get to that in a minute. Uh, the first thing to be said about Krakow, aside from its beauty, its architectural wonders, uh, its extraordinary cultural history, and indeed political history, is that as my uh, friend and colleague in teaching in Krakow every summer, Father Raymond D'Souza put it three or four years ago, uh, Krakow in, a, in an almost singular way uh, is the city where the 20th century happened uh, in its worst expressions and the city where the answer to that was given. The bad news you're all familiar with. Uh, Krakow was under a draconian Nazi occupation uh, for almost five and a half years. Uh, the drama that you saw portrayed in the film Schindler's List uh, was played out in Krakow during that occupation. The genocide complex at Auschwitz-Birkenau uh, is a mere uh, 40 miles away. Uh, and then right following hard on the heels of that came the communist occupation of Poland uh, and another wave of, of persecution, particularly of the Catholic Church. So everything that was really bad about the 20th century, bad ideas married to modern technology creating uh, dreadful, lethal uh, human circumstances murder on a scale unimaginable uh, even 50 years before took place in Krakow or around there. Uh, and yet, 
at the same time, the answer to all of that awfulness was also given in Krakow in the visions of divine mercy radiating from the heart of the risen Christ that were experienced by a then completely obscure Polish nun uh, named Maria Faustina Kowalska and later brought to the world through her diary and through the divine mercy devotion uh, which she was so instrumental in bringing uh, to the world. The boy who became the bishop of Krakow, who became the pope, Karol Wojtyla, had a very powerful sense of the ways in which the 20th century had really shredded the moral fabric of humanity. And if you think of the human condition as a kind of tapestry, there had been enormous tears uh, rent in this tapestry by the 20th century. Uh, and yet it was he who, during the Second Vatican Council, cleaned up some confusions about Faustina's diary uh, that put her beatification cause back on course. And it was his encouragement of the Divine Mercy devotion as Pope, uh, which helped take that to the next stage uh, throughout the life of the World Church. And, of course, it was he who uh, canonized uh, Faustina as the first saint of the third Christian millennium on Divine Mercy Sunday, which we, uh, 2000, which we now celebrate on the octave of Easter uh, every year. That was, that was a lot more than Krakowian home pleading, uh, uh, as it were. That was not just lifting up the home team. Uh, John Paul II really believed that the message of Divine Mercy conveyed through Faustina's visions uh, made accessible on a mass audience by uh, the devotion uh, was the answer to all of that uh, awfulness that the world had inflicted upon itself, that humanity had done to itself in the 20th century. So aside from all of the other levels of history, culture, uh, politics, uh, whatever we find in, in, in Krakow, uh, Andy, your daughter's sitting right up front here, and you can join her. Thank you, George. Um, uh, there is this very deep spiritual texture to the city that comes from the interaction between its, its experience of the awfulness of the 20th century and its uh, experience of Faustina's uh, visions. Um, I called the book City of Saints in recollection of something that Cardinal Maharsky, John Paul II's successor as Archbishop of Krakow, uh, gave me uh, when I first interviewed him in 1997. I said, how many beatification causes are going on in, in Krakow uh, right now? I thought, you know, three, four, whatever, five at the outside. He gave me a list of 50. Uh, some of them related to the experience of the Second World War. Uh, some of them related to the Nazi experience, but some of them quite ordinary people, or seemingly ordinary people. Uh, the woman who started uh, then Archbishop Wojtyla's door-to-door health care for the elderly nursing service is uh, one, of these, uh, one of these people. So it really is a city of saints. Uh, and it seemed to me that a good way to meet the city 
was through the life of its most distinguished uh, son, uh, who lived there for precisely 40 years, 1938 to 1978. So you walk through Krakow in the footsteps of Karol Wojtyla as student, as priest, as bishop, and ultimately as pope, uh, meditating on vocational themes uh, at each stop along the way uh, with historical notes provided by my uh, former colleague Kerry Gress uh, and some wonderful photographs by my son uh, Stephen. So that's, that's the basic idea. But let's get back to World Youth Day. For World Youth Day to come to Krakow next year is for it to come home because there is a very real sense in which uh, World Youth Day uh, did not begin in Rome in 1985. It began in Krakow in 1948 uh, with Wojtyla's experience as a university chaplain uh, and the formation of this extraordinary group of his lay friends who remained his friends throughout his life. Uh, who called themselves Schrodowisko, Polish word for environment or milieu, um, and to whom, uh, to whom the book is dedicated, uh, many of them happily having become friends of mine uh, as well over the past uh, 15 years. It was Wojtyla's experience with these young people that led uh, first to the book Love and Responsibility, that ultimately led to the theology of the body that made him the most pastorally experienced pope in modern history in dealing with problems of marriage and the family, and that ultimately led to World Youth Day uh, because he believed, John Paul II believed, that while lifestyles had changed, dress had changed, music had changed, um, things inhaled had changed uh, over those uh, 40 years. The youthful yearning for a life of greatness, uh, the yearning to be challenged to live a large life, had not changed. And he thought the church could provide that. When John Paul II announced World Youth Days, in, uh, in the mid-1980s that he was going to, this wasn't going to be a one-off thing, we we're going to do this every three years. <coughs> Excuse me, the skepticism in the world episcopate was so thick you could cut it with a knife. I mean, virtually no one believed this was a doable proposition. And yet his, his conviction proved uh, the opposite to be true. Uh, proved that indeed there was still this deep instinct for goodness, this yearning to be challenged to something great in young hearts that had not been made cynical yet by the experience of life. Uh, and he wanted to energize that for the future of the church. And we see what's now happened in these uh, extraordinary outpourings of faith and fervor uh, every three years now. Uh, as World Youth Days became, have become a, uh, really a regular part of the rhythm of the life uh, of the Catholic Church. Um, the last time I saw John Paul II at dinner on, I think it was December 14th, 2004, about six weeks before he 
went into the hospital at the beginning of what would be the end. Um, he opened the Christmas present I had brought him. One of his interesting personal habits was opening your Christmas presents when you got them. He wasn't going to wait around for the 25th. <laughs> and I had, he, he loved um, what we would call coffee table books, you know, big photo books. And uh, so I had bought, brought him this enormous uh, book of National Parks of the United States. And he opened it somewhat laboriously. He was in rather tough shape at that point. Uh, to Rocky Mountain National Park in Denver. And he said, mm, Denver, World Youth Day, 1993. Bishops of America said it couldn't be done. I proved them wrong. <laughs> and indeed he did, and the whole flourishing of campus ministry and youth ministry that we see in the United States today, which is really one of the most striking features of Catholic life in America in the early 21st century, is at least in part a result of uh, that. So um, the book is aimed for those going to World Youth Day, but is certainly uh, something that I hope can be used for the next 20 years as people go uh, to that remarkable city and learn it uh, for themselves. Uh, I think it's a unique way to learn a city through the life of one of its people. Uh, but you've got all the other normal touristy stuff. This was built in such and such a date. This was torn down in such and such a date. The Tartars burned this to the ground in such and such a date. This was rebuilt. It's all that stuff is in there. Uh, but it's set in the context of the deeper level of human history, which is, of course, the working out of salvation history uh, in the history of the uh, world. Um, for those of you who are tablet people, um, not in the sense of the English Catholic publication, but in the sense of those little screen things, um, there is an e-book uh, version of this in which all of the pictures are in color. Uh, so I don't want to depress the book book sale. Uh, by mentioning that, but I thought I would mention uh, uh, that as well. We wanted to make this as accessible as possible for uh, people going to World Youth Day, and uh, I rather suspect that the great majority of the young people going are much more used to reading on tablets than they are in these strange artifacts called uh, printed uh, books. Uh, that's what this is all about, and uh, I hope uh, I hope it's an enjoyable introduction to the city and to the life of John Paul II. There, there is a way in which this book might be described as witness to hope light. Um, it's not all of the Wojtyla story by any means, which comes, as you know, in both two in two volumes, witness to hope in the end and the beginning. But it's enough of it that you can you can get the basic outline through uh, this. So you could. Those of you of a certain age can think of this as classics illustrated uh, witness to hope. Uh, but thank you for coming, and I'd be happy to take uh, questions. Emily's got the uh, microphone. Uh, thank you for your talk uh, and for writing this book. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Uh, I was just wondering, what do you think it is about Krakow or maybe about the people who live there that made them resilient to the horrors of World War II that you could see all these causes for canonization, all these people who would merit that kind of cause? 
Well, at, at a very basic level, um, while the experience of Krakow during the Second World War, which is now captured in a remarkable museum, built in the old Oscar Schindler factory. I mean, they turned the, the Schindler enamel works into a museum called Krakow Under Occupation, 1939 to 1945, uh, was draconian in the extreme. Um, there was no rule of law. I mean, you could be the Gestapo guy or the SS guy or the Wehrmacht guy. I didn't like the way you looked at him. He could shoot you, and that would be the end of it. Um, in terms of the physical fabric of the city, it was the only Polish city not completely leveled during the Second World War. Germans got there too fast in September 1939 uh, and left too quickly in January 1945. Uh, to have much time to indulge their taste for gratuitous uh, demolition. So the city as, as a architectural, physical artifact um, lives in continuity with its past in a way that, for example, Warsaw or Wrocław or uh, <coughs> Poznan or other major cities in Poland simply doesn't. Um, what gave the city this strength to resist? Well, the simple answer is the church. I mean, the church became the safe deposit box of national identity and national will. The Archbishop uh, of Krakow, uh, Adam Stefan Sapieha, <coughs> excuse me, was a man of um, uh, extraordinary and quite unexpected courage. He was, if I may use the term, a rather conventional church bureaucrat for the first 40-some years of his priesthood and episcopacy. <coughs> and indeed, he tried to retire. Uh, right after Pius XII was elected, he wrote uh, the new pope and said, I'm getting too old for this. He was 72 or 73 at the time. And something bad is coming, and you might need, you know, a stronger person here. Pius XII said, "Nothing doing. You're staying." And this guy, who had been this rather timid, conventional, bureaucratic type, became a tiger under the occupation. And some of the stories of that are told uh, uh, in here. So his leadership um, was certainly a factor in all of. And then the sacrifice of consecrated religious, as well as diocesan clergy, was enormous during the Second World War. Poland, one-fifth of the priests in Poland died during the Second World War. One-fifth of the population of Poland died during the Second World War. So, I mean, the, but the, the, the priestly death toll was commensurate with the national uh, death toll. Um, and that was an inspiration to lay people to, um, you know, to live as nobly as they could under these, these really awful uh, circumstances. Now, um, one of the great examples of that was in Wojtyla's parish in this, little, this working class neighborhood called Debniki, which is, I think, the third, second or third tour stop uh, in the book. Uh, the parish was run by the Salesians, 
there were eight priests there. Seven were taken away in um, May uh, of 1941, I think it was. The dates are in here. To Dachau, where five of them died and have been beatified. Uh, the remaining priest asked a layman, a kind of autodidact um, specialist in the spirituality of John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, a tailor by trade, uh, to take over what we would call youth ministry. And this guy named Jan Taranofsky, another beatification cause, formed the young men, it was, he was in charge of the young men of the parish, into what he called living rosary groups. Uh, groups of 15 young men for the 15 decades of the rosary as it was then structured. Uh, each of those living rosary groups being led by a particularly mature young man and Wojtyla was one of those leaders. Um, so in addition to developing some of his skills as a leader of others, it was Taranofsky who under these utterly draconian circumstances introduced him to Carmelite spirituality and introduced him to Louis de Montfort. <coughs> so his mature, <coughs> excuse me, Marian theology begins there as well. So um, it's, a, it's a very important lesson in how under the most unimaginably awful circumstances, you know, good stuff can happen. Um, and, uh, you know, God raises up uh, leaders across the body of the church to fill in the gaps when the formal leadership is struck down. Yeah. Two quick items. Just wanted to ask you from perspective about your process as an author and, um, what you learned new in this book, and also is Poland a Catholic country, and if so, what does that mean? Um, well, the simple answer is I outlined this in Krakow when I was teaching there in uh, 2014, um, and uh, you know figured out you know how how one would block this out, how you would learn, how you would teach people the city through the stages of the life of John Paul II. And then I wrote it in about two and a half weeks up at our summer place in Canada right after that. Uh, where Carrie had done her part of this and I you know, blended the two and, and so forth and so on. Um, so it's, I mean, my part of this is a story I know particularly well, so uh, uh, it was an easy uh, and, and pleasant uh, writing task. I mean, I learned a lot of stuff about the history of the city I didn't know before from going through uh, some of those uh, things. Uh, yes, Poland is a Catholic country. I mean, uh, the overwhelming majority of Poles self-identify as Catholics. Uh, practice is down over the last 25 years, but Sunday Mass attendance on a national basis I think is still like 46, 47 percent, which is by the standards of Belgium, 4 percent, France, 4 percent, Germany, 7 percent, uh, pretty robust. Um, I think the church is trying to find it. The, the, the church in Poland has never lived in a mature democracy. And to find a public voice, particularly for the bishops, I think has been a challenge. 
my own view is that they, they need to take seriously a rather dramatic reform of seminaries uh, in terms of intellectual formation and uh, whatnot. Uh, because Poland is not in any way immune to the tidal wave of sludge that is washing across Europe uh, today and that has done such damage to other traditionally Catholic countries. Um, I do not force, it, I would be surprised uh, if Poland were to go the route of Spain, Portugal, Ireland, or Quebec. I think that's not on the cards. But it could become Italy. It, do, it doesn't have to be. I don't think that's set in stone. But, you know, were things to not go well, I think that would be the paradigm, not, not the total crash and burn that you see in the other four places I uh, mentioned. But there's a lot of good stuff going on in the church in Poland, and um, I think World Youth Day next year will be an energizer, uh, because the church is going to have to uh, host these people. Um, Krakow, um, uh, at the height of its population, like, which is like right now, during the academic year, Krakow has 30-some universities in it. And there are 1.1 million people, of whom 300,000 are students. Uh, so the real population of the city is about 800,000. Uh, there's just no room hotel-wise and uh, every convent and rectory in town for another, you know, one and a half to two million people. So the, the people of the church are going to have to step up and, uh, you know, host families and all that sort of business. And that, that could be a genuinely reinvigorating experience for the church. Eric. I'll begin with a little bit of a, a plug here, I guess. Um, my own story. Um, I went... Uh, to Krakow with George in 2003 as the only Protestant on the church. I uh, was the only Protestant in the group of about, I don't know, 30, 35 students, uh, which George apologized for. But um, uh, We knew you were a doable project. And, <laughs> and I was in the church 10 months later. But the, the walking tour of <laughs> John Paul II's Krakow was a part of that. And okay. so I thank you for this story in this book. It's just a... Uh, it was very powerful for me. I've been thinking about uh, you and Krakow and Poland a lot in this uh, last week since the Paris attacks. Right. Um, there was the recent elections in Poland. And then, um, you know, two of the things that were just really visceral that came through to me in my time in, in Krakow was the gashes on the face of the Black Madonna and then also the trumpeteer uh, and the basilica and the square. These are just two um, big parts of the Polish story that both involve um, repelling uh, and dealing with attacks um, from uh, Muslim lands. And uh, just what role you think Poland may have in, in the church in, uh, in, in voicing a voicing, uh, the Catholic Church's story in response to what's going on. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, thanks for what you said, Eric. It's uh, great that that was such a good experience for you, and please give my best to Bonnie when you uh, see her next. Um, Eleven years ago, I wrote a little book 
called The Cube in the Cathedral, about the future of a godless Europe. And uh, one of the four scenarios I sketched in that book at the end for possible European futures was called 1683 reversed, meaning the, that, that was the last Islamic assault on Europe repelled at the gates of Vienna by, among others, the Polish cavalry under the leadership of King Jan III Sobieski. Um, I was saying to uh, Emily before the thing that I had dinner with last night with my publisher who continues to sell that book and I said I, I think we might consider a new edition with the somewhat more boisterous title, I told you so, you bloody fools, you know. Um, uh, Europe is not going to be able to meet the challenge of either its own demographic freefall into senescence. There isn't a single country in the EU today with a replacement level uh, birth rate. Uh, or this external salt from a different civilizational orbit, unless it recovers confidence in its own civilizational project. And the, that is not going to happen through a continental-wide meditation on John Rawls and liberal political theory. I mean, it just isn't going to happen. Uh, it certainly isn't going to happen in a continental-wide meditation on Jacques Derrida uh, or Jürgen Habermas or, you know, pick your European philosopher. Uh, it can only happen, I think, through a Christian revival in Europe. Uh, and that Christian revival is going to have the very difficult task uh, of distinguishing a conservative politics in the broad sense of the term, the conserving of fundamental cultural values embodied in political life, distinguishing that from fascism. Because the 20, normal 20th century European response to this kind of pressure is to go the route of the totalitarian temptation. And um, I think that temptation is very alive in, in parts of, of Europe today. Um, uh, now, part of the reason why this flood of, of migrants, I think they're better described as. I mean, the, the initial wave were properly described as refugees from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. But that's not what's going on now. And what's going on is people who see an economic opportunity and are flooding in to, to take advantage of it, uh, by and large. Um, and Europe's going to have to make up its mind, you know, how to deal with that. Um, because the reason it's having to deal with it is that it didn't want to deal with the problem at the source, which was the collapse of Syria and Iraq as functioning states. Now, the United States, in my view, has a very large uh, burden of blame to bear on that uh, because of policies of the, recent, of the past seven years and mistakes that were made in the previous administration. Um, but... Uh, I said 11 years ago that there was a demographic vacuum in Europe, and vacuums in nature don't stay unfilled. They get filled from somewhere, and that's part of what's going on here today. 
um, Germany has been dealing with its uh, demographic winter for at least 10 or 15 years by the massive importation of what are called Gastarbeiter, these guest workers. Um, and um, that, you know, so a, a lot of things are coming home to roost at once right now. And I don't think it's going to be a pretty picture sorting this out. I mean, I, there is no large-scale figure that I can see with the wit or the authority to say, all right, time out, let's get serious about this. Um, and uh, I'm afraid we're going to see a fair amount more of what we saw in Paris last uh, Friday night and not only in Europe. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that the first youth, uh, youth conference uh, that was held in 1940? Or, no, or 1948 was when Wojtyla began his work as a college chaplain. Okay. And that was the beginning, I'm speculating, of the idea of World Youth Day. Okay. So in spite of the communist rule at the time and uh, the harshness and yeah, repression, he, he was able to organize something? It was all under, it was all kind of clandestine. I mean, um, Sapieha, the archbishop, uh, by then a cardinal, knew that part of the battle for the future was a battle for the hearts and minds of young people. Uh, there had been a flourishing campus ministry at the Agalonian University. He wanted to set up a second center of campus ministry for a different set of institutions of higher education uh, across the crack of Old Town. And he, he invited this young <coughs> newly ordained uh, priest, Carol Wojtyla, to do that. And he literally went, it was retail work. I mean, he went door to door in student dormitories, you know, finding people who were interested in being part of a Catholic reflection uh, on the catechism. Uh, it was a liturgical movement of sorts. He taught these kids how to sing Gregorian chant. Um, uh, it was a social movement in that, you know, lots of friendships formed and, and whatnot. And it was all clandestine. I mean, uh, for the first several years of this, none of the kids knew each other's last names. Um, he was referred to as uncle. This is the famous Buyak, uh, which they called him till the end of his life. Uh, that was a kind of Stalin-era nom de guerre. Uh, and, you know, when he would go on <laughs> camping or skiing or hiking trips with them down in the Tatra Mountains, I mean, he would not be dressed uh, in clerics. It would be Mufti, and they would call him Vuyak. Uh, so, yeah, but you had to, you had to organize underneath the system, um, which, of course, was going on all over the communist world. Bob... Uh, McConnell is here. The Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine existed entirely underground for, from 1946 to 1990. So, I mean, it's, it's a question of commitment and will, but it can be done. So what city in the rest of the world would you say either is the closest analog to Krakow today or has the potential of becoming the same? I'm not sure there is one. I mean, um, 
this place embodies a national experience, culturally and politically, <coughs> in a way that is um, that's really quite unique. Now, I mean, I suppose you could say Paris plays something of a role like that, um, but. Um, you know, Paris was not the safe deposit box of French national identity um, during the Second World War, um, to put it gently. Um, uh, so there's something really quite unique about all of this. Um, and the continuities there are uh, quite remarkable, as is the history of heroic sanctity. Um, Saint Stanislav, who was the seventh bishop of Krakow, I think, in the high Middle Ages, begins this tradition of the, the bishop is the last line of defense. They use the Latin phrase, defend, defensor civitatis, the defender of the, uh, of the commonwealth. Um, and when all else fails, when the nobles have cut their deals and the politicians have made a mess of things and whatnot, it's the bishop who's, who's the last line of defense. And Sapieha embodied that during the Second World War. Foytiwa certainly embodied it uh, during the communist period. And uh, then took it to the world. And I don't, you know, there's a, when I was, you know, in really an intense conversation with John Paul II over what became Witness to Hope, I said to him, he would always begin dinner by saying, what are you learning about me now? <laughs> and, uh, and I said on one of these occasions, uh, I'm very struck by how virtually everything in the pontificate was previewed in Krakow. You know, whether it's World Youth Day or this travel, which was very much previewed by his intense round of pastoral visitations, parish visitations in the diocese, or the theology of the body, which was previewed in this youth group. I mean, all of this stuff had happened before. And he looked at me like, you know, the, the, the dim kid is finally, you know, getting the answer here. And he said, well, that's obvious. If the Holy Spirit saw fit to call the Archbishop of Krakow to be the Bishop of Rome, that must mean that there is something in the experience of Krakow that is of use to the whole church. So he had enough confidence in his own experience that he could be creative in a new circumstance, thinking that what seemed particular was in fact universal. <coughs> But that in itself is a great lesson because we don't learn universals by themselves. We learn universal loyalties through particulars. You don't learn to love baseball. You learn to love a team and then you learn baseball out of that. Uh, the same is true in, uh, in this case. The universal comes to us through the particular. It's a very, very Catholic idea. Um, and I'm not sure, uh, you know, where one could point to, if Charles Borromeo had become Pope in the 16th century, um, 
Okay, what he did in Milan, you know, you can then imagine being projected onto a global stage. I, for some reason, the other day, I looked up the number of popes who were elected instead of Charles Borromeo. It's a rather appallingly long list. Um, there were two certifiably great popes during the 40-some years when he was an eligible candidate, and the rest were not uh, top of the line. Um, interesting uh, how the church works, but uh, a proof that saints are the most important things uh, added. Please join me in thanking George Weigel. Thank you. Uh,